Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is one in 10 part four, where we'll discuss the topic of statistics over a series of episodes with special guest, Dr. Shannon Morrison. In this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Shannon, welcome back and thanks for joining us for our last statistics episode. I can't believe we've covered so much in such a short time. Me neither. (laughs) So now to start with today, we're going to dive into research methodology. So Shannon, what exactly is a process that say Kate and I, for example, would go through to design a clinical trial? And can you give us an overview? It sounds likely, by the way, you and I organising a clinical trial. I can totally see that happening. One day. You never know. You never know. Oh, I have this like long answer, but I was going to say first you would see a mentor who would tell you don't do it. <laughs> Maybe like do something more productive. <laughs> but if you really, really wanted to, designing and starting a trial is a pretty long process. Mm. Firstly, you need your question. There's no point doing it if you don't have one. And this is going to inform your hypotheses, your study type, everything. So this is really important to be quite clear on. So let's pretend that your study is going to look at a new type of regional book and then you want to see if it's effective for a particular operation and your research question while it needs to be pretty clear it doesn't need to be complicated it can just be does this book work so you start by writing a protocol it is a very formal document and it has several components to it so you start with your background and that's where your literature review comes in so on the exam write protocol and then one background dash lit review point (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's really where you are looking at all the work that's been done before and also forms your justification for your study if you you want to find evidence for your block you want to describe the anatomy you want to describe the theoretical basis you want to look at what's currently being done for the surgery you want to put as much information there as possible Mm. next up is your hypothesis and you should at least have one big hypothesis which is your question but formed as a statement so instead of just does fancy new block work for big operation? Your hypothesis is now new fancy block decreases analgesic requirements after surgery X. Um, mm. So this is now your statement that you're looking to prove or in the case of hypothesis testing, you're looking for the opposite of this mm. and disproving that. And then you get to your methods and that's where you're going to describe in as much detail as possible what your study is actually going to do. So in the exam, write three methods dash PICO. Ah. <laughs> so PICO's patient. So all patients having surgery X, intervention is your fancy block, comparison is no fancy block and outcomes. This needs to be something specific and measurable. So morphine equivalents or pain scores or whatever you want. You can have secondary outcomes like length of stay, satisfaction, whatever, but your primary outcome is where all the rest of your sample size and stuff is based off. Mm. And this is all also where you're going to talk about what type of study, so an RCT, mm. how you're going to recruit, eligibility criteria, allocation, randomizing, blinding, data recording, all of this stuff. 
And then finally, you want to talk about how you're going to manage and analyze your data. So you say that you're going to store it safely in a computer that's definitely, definitely password protected yeah. and all of that stuff. <laughs> um, and also what you're going to do to it. So you want to talk about how you're going to address protocol breaches, safety issues, mm. if you're going to analyze in the middle, if you've got stopping rules. And this is why it's a good idea to get a statistician at the start mm. because they can mm. help set up your database and do your analysis yeah. plan and mm. your stopping rules and all the rest of it from the beginning rather than trying to jerry-rig it halfway through. Mm. Okay. Once you have a protocol, you need a couple more things. So you need some money. Mm helps and then you also need ethics and governance approval so money can come from funding bodies so getting grants from ANSCA or NHMRC you send your grant in it's reviewed by a panel you're given feedback and <laughs> sometimes it's successful <laughs> um, ethics is submitted to your institutional research mm -hmm. ethics committee I think we're going to talk about a list a little bit more later mm. and then governance is also required and governance and ethics are often confused they're thought to be the same thing they're not really the same thing ethics is looking at the ethical principles Principles, whereas governance is looking at the framework in terms of like legal regulations mm. and quality assurance. So in the exam, write them both down because they're probably worth a point each. Mm. And then once you have all of that, you can start and then you're going to recruit mm. and you'll do your study and you keep going until you hit your sample size or you hit a stopping rule. And then you have your data. So you do your analysis and then you pick the journal and then you write your manuscript and then you submit it and then it gets peer reviewed. Hopefully they accept it. Mm -hmm. And then you're done <laughs> many years later. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely no hair falling out, right? No, no. <laughs> so what is a pilot trial? Um, a pilot trial is when you do a smaller, like a baby version of your proposed larger study. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a practice run. So you're seeing it to test out. You, it's often done to test out the methods, to test out the procedures and make sure it's going to work, to identify issues. And then also sometimes it's done to establish a sample so that you can then work out what your sample size for your big study will be. Yeah, fair enough. And what are the sources of bias or confounding that we should be aware of when we're designing a clinical trial? Oh, definitions again. <laughs> <laughs> Grab your pens and paper. Confounding, it's a bit of a weird concept. So a confounder is a variable that's independently associated with both your intervention and your outcome. So say you study lung cancer when they were looking at that for smoking, they found that alcohol consumption was associated with lung cancer, which kind of doesn't really make pathological sense. Mm. There's no like biochemical pathway that does that. Mm. But when they look back at it, cigarette smoking is associated with alcohol consumption. Mm. So it's associated with both. So alcohol consumption then it's not really a causal relationship between alcohol consumption and lung cancer. It's due to the confounding effect of smoking. Mm. So in that case, smoking is the confounder. It's associated with alcohol and with cancer. Mm. So having confounders in your study, you often don't know that they're there until later. And hopefully when you set it up using randomization procedures, you'll avoid them, but mm. they're pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> Then bias is any systematic error in the study that results in incorrect estimates of the association. So this is usually a methodological problem rather than a population mm. problem. So some examples of bias are selection bias. So you may have some groups are over or underrepresented. So say you did a study and you just happen to be sampling people from a high socioeconomic area, then you may not get different racial groups represented so mm. then you're going to have a bias there mm. recall bias is another one that's more important for retrospective studies so if something happened to somebody they're much more likely to remember it than mm. it not happening they'll be like oh no no if it happened or not whereas if it did happen they're like 
definitely happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good point. But observation bias. So this is the Hawthorne effect that we kind of talk about mm. a lot. It's where participants in a study, they know they're being watched and they either consciously mm. or unconsciously affects their behaviour. So they actually find that for a lot of medical like drug studies, because adherence to drug therapy is a lot higher in studies, it's mm. actually really hard to compare a new treatment to an established program because suddenly everyone on the established program does better too. Mm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, so sometimes they get around that by doing like sneaky designs where they actually give everyone a placebo for a while and mm. that way they all kind of get what they're supposed to be as a baseline mm. and then they add in the new treatment. So mm. they do this like all they also do this thing where they watch people for a while and the ones who are not so good at following the rules, just get mm. cold and then they start the trial. So anyway, oh. there are ways of getting around that. Interesting. Yeah. Confirmation bias. So that's where if you if you don't blind your study, so if you're mm. doing your own stats and you can see all the groups and you know what you kind of want it to see, then you mm. may just kind of emphasise things more than others. Mm. And then publishing bias. So hardly anyone publishes a negative trial because it's really boring. So... <laughs> Um, that's we did all this work and we found yeah, no different. They're like five oh, years yeah. of my life and it's trash. So, oh, no. <laughs> um, so that's actually a real problem though because it means that when they do a meta analysis, mm. you've only got the public, like the published mm. studies, which are usually positive. So, yeah. it kind of makes me very skeptical about stuff. Mm. You know, people are like everything says this, and you're like, yeah, that's just everything that's published though. Yeah. So we don't know what wasn't published. Yeah. That's such a good point. So now we've got a plan for our clinical trial and we're not disillusioned at all. Mm-hmm. How would we go about getting ethics approval before embarking on our trial? And in fact, what do ethics committees even do? Oh, so human research ethics committees, I'm just going to say HREX because it's easier. Mm-hmm. They review research proposals that involve human participants to make sure that they meet ethical standards and guidelines. So they follow the NHMRC national statement. Any study that involves human participants, but also animals, but that's like a separate ethics committee, it needs either an approval or a waiver. Mm. So low and negligible, like LNR pathway, people might have heard of that. Mm. Um, That's an expedited review process. So you still submit an application, but it's for studies where the risk is really just inconvenience Mm. up to like maybe some discomfort. And when they say discomfort, they mean like one phone call and they had to sit on the couch for five minutes, not like taking bloods yeah. so, okay. I, I got an lnr for a trial i did on on anesthetic registrars in simulation so it was like what well, they might get a bit stressed in the simulation and yeah. yeah so that was yeah yeah. That, that was through. yeah yeah it's usually like a phone survey is kind of the mm. limit of how much discomfort you're allowed mm. so it's a uh, pretty pretty vague okay so everything else needs a formal approval, which means you submit your proposal. So if you're in Queensland, you use Ethics Review Manager. I think it's also in Victoria and a few other states now, which okay. is nice. But you submit it and then the HREC meets a couple of times a year, usually once every quarter, sometimes more often if there's a lot. And they review every single project that's submitted. Mm. So if you submit your project the day after the HREC met, then you might be mm. waiting months before yours comes up. So mm. it's a long process before it's even reviewed. Mm. And then the outcome is that it's either accepted, declined, or they request clarifications. And then there's a little bit of variation about who's on a HREC, but generally speaking, there's a chairperson. Otherwise, I imagine it must be chaos. Mm. Um, there's a lay person, and sometimes they have two, like one male and one female, mm. and that's someone who's not affiliated with the institution and is not medical, scientific, legal, or academic. Often teachers okay. tend to do this. Yeah. Okay. Um, one person who's involved in professional care, counselling, or treatment, so social workers, mm. a person with a pastoral care role, so a priest or a pastor or a rabbi or whatever. Okay. 
um, one lawyer and preferably one who's not advising the institution, so separate, mm. and then one to two people who have current experience with the proposals that are considered. So you tend to have like the core ethics committee and then a bunch of people who are kind of brought in for certain projects and then taken back out. Mm. So um, mm. they're not always there. The most important thing is that you can't start anything towards your study until you have ethics and governance approval. Mm. Okay, all right. So look, for the final part of our last episode, we're going to cover a smaller topic that we haven't really covered in depth yet. So let's talk about forest plots. We mentioned in episode one that forest plots are seen in meta-analyses, but what exactly are they? They're, they're actually pretty cool in terms of a graph because they summarise visually an entire meta-analysis on one picture. Mm. So in a meta-analysis, you could have like 20 studies and it mm. will present the main finding from those 20 studies and the pool finding all in one picture just mm. to look at. Mm. So let's talk about how to interpret what a forest plot is telling us at a glance. So for starters, what do each of the little boxes with their whiskers on either side mean? So... Each row of the box of the forest plot represents one study that's mm. included in the analysis. So the little box is the point estimate of that study. So for the outcome they're reporting, say it's the mean, then it might be study A's mean is like one box. And then the next row, study B's mean is like another box. Some of those boxes are teeny weeny and other boxes are huge. Mm. And the size of the box represents the size of the study in terms of how many people were in it. So 10, 10 participants might have a teeny weeny tiny box and mm. then a 10,000 participant study has got a massive box. Okay. Mm. okay, cool. Then so there's the box and then there's the horizontal line. The horizontal line is the 95% confidence interval of mm -hmm. each study's point estimate. So in general, larger studies tend to have more precise confidence intervals. So they'll have mm. a bigger box but smaller horizontal line and then the smaller ones will have like a tiny box and then a big line. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah and that's where we get back to power again. So the little yeah. studies weren't really powered to really precisely nut down that estimate. So they're just like, eh, it's somewhere in here. Mm. Yeah, okay. And in each forest plot there is a single line perpendicular to the whiskers of each of the boxes that represent zero. What is the significance of that line? Yeah, so we talked about this before. That's the line representing the value of null effect, so no difference really. Um, it's not necessarily zero because mm -hmm. if we remember back to ratios, null effect mm -hmm. is one. Mm -hmm. So if you see a forest plot of ratios, that line will be one rather than O, zero. Mm -hmm. And it's just a really easy way of looking. It's like a big line that tells you no difference, so no benefit, no harm. And that's the whole point of a forest plot is that it's really easy to just look at it. And if those horizontal 95% confidence interval lines cross the vertical line, that study was not significant. The other nice thing about a forest plot is that the left and right hand sides usually have like nice big labels on them that tell you what you're actually looking at. So they'll be like favours treatment versus favours control or like favours drug versus favours placebo. So you're like, oh, they're all on one side. It's really easy to look at. <laughs> awesome. That's cool. And right at the bottom of the forest plot, so below all the boxes and whiskers, there's a diamond with its own set of whiskers. Now, what does that represent? So that one is very special. It is the cumulative result of all the studies. So they took all of those studies, smashed them all together and say this is what they all came up with. Mm. Um, so the diamond represents the cumulative point estimate and it's huge because it's obviously all of those studies. So the mm. number of participants in this like fake big study mm. is every single other one. And then the horizontal line is that 95% confidence interval. And again, because it's such a big one, it tends to be quite narrow. Mm. If that diamond's horizontal line doesn't cross the vertical line, then your meta-analysis is significant. So you could ignore everything else in the forest plot and just look for where the diamond is. Yeah. 
Sounds like a nice little cheat. Like yeah. <laughs> so look, it's uh, it's worthwhile mentioning that we haven't been able to cover every single statistics topic that's relevant to our practice in this podcast series. Specifically, we wanted to cover regression and the Kaplan-Meier survival plots, but despite our best efforts, we just haven't been able to squeeze them in. But Shannon has been kind enough to provide us with some recommendations for resources if you're interested, and we'll include these in our show notes. However, before we sign off, we have one more question for you, Shannon. What did you learn in anesthesia this week? Oh, I learned how to do the parallel technique for bronchial blocker placement in small children, like ones too small for a DLT. Oh. Yeah, because I only knew how to do it like in the lumen, not outside the lumen. So now I feel very clever. But also I learned how valuable it is. You know, when you have those like greatest of all time people in your department Mm -hmm. who know everything and Mm -hmm. you're like, please don't ever leave Mm. them. (laughs) <laughs> I learned the value of them. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. That's really cool. Awesome. That's cool. It sounds like a very practical learning experience. Yeah. Nice. So, look, this episode series has been a completely mammoth undertaking and yep. it's involved an enormous amount of effort from you, Shannon. We'd like to say a massive thank you for joining us to talk about statistics. It's been a really enlightening series. It's a pretty heavy topic, so hopefully it's helpful or we treated some insomnia. <laughs> hopefully the former (laughs) no you did a great job thank you so much for joining us this was a really informative statistics series finale on today's episode of deep breaths as always if you have any questions comments or suggestions you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com consultants and fellows be sure to claim cpd for listening to today's episode instructions are in the episode notes thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on deep breaths